product managers, designers, and even engineers, we speak a foreign language and we forget it all the time. And we use terms that we created within our functions and we expect everyone else to understand them in the exact same way we do. We're working in an agile method. We're gonna do a discovery sprint. We're going to do some contextual inquiry. Um, we are going to do some validation and we use all these terms. And sometimes the stakeholders may even nod their head if they think, okay, I understand, I think what agile means, but they don't know it the same way. The discipline of design is now key to building great products. More and more companies are making space for it at the higher levels. More people than ever want to become designers. And most of us who already do the job want to find ways to have just a little bit more impact in our teams. Welcome to Design Meets Business. I'm Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I bring you world-class product and design leaders who found ways to shape products, companies, and entire industries, and who are now sharing what they know with you and me. My hope is that we all get to learn from the experiences, ideas, and stories shared on this podcast and, in the process, become better designers. My guest today is Sean O'Neill. Sean worked at Amazon since its early days, when it was only 2,000 employees, and was previously CPO of GFK and a product director at Tesco, amongst other companies. Sean very recently became CPTO at Synchron, which only became official after our recording of this podcast. In our conversation, we discuss how design can better work with product, how to speak the language of our senior stakeholders, and what he's learned about hiring from interviewing over a thousand people at Amazon. Get your notebooks out, because this episode is going to teach you a lot. And with that, I bring you Sean O'Neill. Sean, I'm so glad I get to talk to you today. Uh, welcome to Design Meets Business. I'm excited to have you on because talking to design leaders is one thing, but talking to product leaders can bring a different perspective. And I think we can learn different things by talking to different people. So thanks again for being on. I've always seen product managers as my best allies in my product teams. So I hope I'll be able to get uh, into your mind a little bit today. You've uh, started in product all the way back in, in 99, working on, on Amazon's bread and butter really back then, if I'm not mistaken, was books. And, and since then, you've taken on some great roles and achieved some fantastic results with your team. So if that's okay with you, if you can give us some of the cliff notes of your career. Sure. And thank you so much for having me. I've been really fortunate in my career to work with some amazing people who have taught me important lessons at companies that were at really pivotal points of their evolution. So last 25 years, I spent at this intersection of commerce, consumer behavior, data-driven feedback loops, and design. And I've been managing product and design teams for technical products all of this time. And I think I've got some interesting points that I may be able to share along the way. So starting with Amazon in the early days, when there were only 2,000 employees worldwide for Amazon, all the way up through working for Tesco, uh, a huge company there, all the e-commerce apps and websites around the world. I have worked for some of the smallest companies, two other founders in a garage working on a new thing as a startup for consumer loyalty rewards. And most recently with GFK, a, a big data and analytics information services company that we just successfully exited from a private equity sale to Advent from KKR. And I'm delighted to chat with you today on this podcast. It's great to see that you've been working with big companies and small companies, and perhaps we could start by diving a little bit into how have you seen product act differently in different types of companies? Because I assume just like with design and anything else, really, in a startup, you behave differently, you work differently, the pace is different, the appetite for risk is different. How, how was that at Amazon in the early days when it was a startup? How was that at Tesco, which is clearly not a startup? And how was that in a garage with two other funders? You've got to bring the right energy and priority to the challenge at hand. So in a startup, there is no three-year plan. There's Thursday's plan. If you don't get the next investor funding in, you're not going to make payroll. And that really does laser focus you on what is the most important consumer validation evidence we can get to help us raise the next round of funding. And so there's value in the startup side to really clarify you only have so many people, they only have so much capacity, you better make sure you're getting the, the right value out of where you want them to spend their time. 
And so you're not going to spend time months getting lost in discovery on some topic for a feature for the startup where you got to move so fast. That's going to be very different even at the early days at Amazon. The, the strength of Amazon has always been a laser focus on the customer and working backwards from solving a need for the customer. Do not get distracted by what your competition's doing. Pay attention to the competition, but don't blindly copy them because so many times a competitor may launch a feature that actually is not working, is not re relevant for your users or for customers. So be careful not to blindly copy them. And a lot of the Amazon early days was how fast can we recruit? Funny enough, they were growing so fast. We needed to constantly recruit more people. And I've been fortunate to learn skills I, that I've carried through to this day on how to interview people. I was trained as a bar raiser at Amazon, which is a, a responsibility to help other teams fill their roles as well. And I've interviewed over a thousand people in my career from all job families. And so it really helps you figure out how to make sure you're bringing the right talent in so that you've got an A-class team surrounding you in all these functions. Over a thousand people, that's amazing. I th if I'm not mistaken, this came from Amazon who, or, or maybe it was Apple, uh, uh, could have been Apple now that I think about it. Uh, someone said A people, or is it B people hire, C people hire, D people, A people only hire A people or something like that. So that could have been Apple, but it's also not relevant. Uh, tell us a little bit about this bar razor. What was it exactly? And how would you describe it? Sure. So the bar razor concept is every new hire should be better than average of the current company. So with every hire, you're trying to upgrade the average capabilities of the whole company. So the idea of raising the bar is every year the bar gets higher to be qualified to work for the company. So there's a lot of skills that go through and Amazon was hiring so many people they could approach it as a science and really use a lot of rigor and controlled experiments. For some engineers, they would have them do online interviews and tests without talking to a single person and make a hiring decision based off it. And for other people, they put them through full loops. They would, for others, they would change what kind of questions they asked and some mix of practical and the personal questions. And then for the people that got hired, it's a running experiment. They literally would track how were those people rated at three months in, at six months in, at 12 months in? What was the retention like? Were there any people that had performance problems right off the start? So they really were able to bring a science. And some of the key lessons that I have used over the years, and I, I've written my own training programs for Tesco and for GFK and others to bring interview excellence to these teams. A big thing is beware of asking theoretical questions only because lots of people are great at reading the theory. They've read the books and they can articulate hypothetical, oh, this is what I would do. I would motivate teams and I would solve user problems and I would test it. And you're like, oh, that's great. Instead, look for evidence. So the way I teach people and train them for interviewing is I say, imagine you are a investigative journalist and you work for the New York Times or Wall Street Journal and your editor gives you a story. This candidate claims she's qualified to work for your company in this role. Go get the story. And if you go and you interview someone and you ask, are you qualified to be this lead designer or head product manager or whatever? And she says, yes. You can't go back to your editor to say, yes, she says she's qualified. Here's my story. They'd reject it. They say, go get the evidence. So in looking for evidence, you try and find examples where people have actually used the skills you want. Give me an example of a time where you had a difficult stakeholder and how did you manage that? Give me an example of a time where you had a product that was failing. What'd you do to turn it around? Give me an example of a time you had high dissatisfaction with one of your products or services or features. What'd you do to solve it? And you hear how they work through these problems. Now the use with this is they don't even have to have succeeded in their example. Maybe they couldn't turn around a product that was failing. But what you want to hear is, did they reflect on the problem? Did they really think about how they would solve it? Did they learn something from it that made them better qualified the next time around? It also helps separate people who claim accomplishments that they really didn't do. Right. You know, everyone might claim, oh, well, I, I was part of this, you know, major launch at Google or at Facebook or at Microsoft. They'll claim, oh, I launched Microsoft Azure. It was all me. Wow, that's a pretty big business. 
let's dig into this. And by digging in with these evidence questions of what was your role and who else was involved and what kind of obstacles did you have to overcome, you're going to pretty quickly figure out if they have enough detail that they were really there or if they really were just a passenger and had no real involvement because they can't dig deep. So looking for evidence. This is great. I remember quite a few interviews that I've done, quite a few interviews that I've been in myself, where this question often comes, which is, what was your part in this project? And we work in product. There's no such thing as I did everything. Even if you were the only designer on the team or the only PM on the team, you might have asked another designer from another team for feedback or, or something like you. You're never the only one who delivers it. And I, there was always been a struggle to try to get to the bottom of what did this person actually do? You're saying looking for evidence, asking questions, depending on how they answer you, you can extract some information from there. How do you deal with that, though, before an interview, in a portfolio, or when you just apply for a job? Because it's much easier to do when I have you face-to-face. -face. But when I'm just looking at your portfolio, and I know that part of every single design project, there is stakeholder management. How do you talk about stakeholders? How do I talk about the fact that I've sat in meetings with a lot of senior stakeholders and I've run them through pitch decks and whatever it may be that I've done to convince them to green light this project? How do you talk about that? There's a couple of different ways. And some, there's some elements that you just will not find out without a conversation. You know, a lot of these conversations is also gauging your communication skills. It's gauging how well do you simplify something because so many businesses today it's all about written communication, it's all email or it's Slack. And a lot can be lost between the messages of confusion that leads to teams going off the rails. So to some degree, I'm also testing for how strong of a communicator are you? Are you summarizing the right headline points or are you diving into the most granular deep story and as a listener, I'm totally lost on what mattered most in this example you're telling me. So you're testing for some of those elements. Some businesses like Amazon, where they rely on the written word so much, they will also give people a small homework assignment. And I'm trying to remember, it's been nine years since I worked at Amazon, but there was something like, pick one of these three topics and write a one-pager summarizing it for us. And one might be if you were going to pitch a charity that you would like to start, or another might be, I can't remember what the other ones were, there might have been like a business opportunity or something, but something that you had the context for and you understood and what they're really looking for is how well do you articulate why something is important? What kind of evidence you bring? What are you trying to get as a call to action? I like this idea of Amazon doing interviews as an experiment, because obviously as part of product organizations, experimentation is um, one of the key tools that we're using to reach whatever goals we're trying to reach. And um, it, it sure sounds like this was some sort of an A, B, C, D, E test or something like that. Oh, many over the years, many variations. That, that's awesome. That's great to hear how a good organization with product at the core of it, it implements experimentation not only as part of the product itself, but also as part of the company. They're building the company just like they're building a product. And that's really cool to see. That's true. There's, I read an article that you wrote some time ago about this simple question that you can ask in an interview, which was a, a question that... I'll have to admit, personally, I always hated and I never asked. I was very negative towards it, but I've read your article and it swayed me a little bit. Let's talk about this. Where do you see yourself in three to five years? And why is that such a key question to ask? So this is a question that I have asked hundreds and hundreds of times over the years. First, there is no right or wrong answer. So as I'm asking somebody, describe for me your ideal job three to five years in the future. And this is a valuable question because it helps me understand their aspirations. What is it that they hope to do? When I ask this question, I always add a couple factors or parameters for them to consider because this is their response. And I'll ask them, does the universe have a title for this job you want to be doing three years to five years in the future? What kind of functional role is it? Or is it some brand new hybrid that you are passionate about that doesn't yet exist? Are there any industry sectors you're deeply passionate about or not? Are there societal trends? It's all about circular economy, perhaps, or not. Are there any technology trends? It's all about generative AI or not. And what's helpful from this is it allows me to get a better sense of the journey someone's on. It allows me to have a sense of their direction of travel. How well does the role we're talking about right now actually match 
to that is useful, but it also helps me understand their potential and where they might want to go. Some people might want to stay an individual contributor their whole career, which is perfectly fine in a lot of tech and design and product roles. Others may want to lead larger teams. That's useful as I think about an organization over time and how org designs are organic. They should be evolving and changing over time. Helps me think about how this person, as they grow and develop in her or his career, may evolve. So to play back, it's not necessarily that you're asking because you want to know where they'll be in five years, because that's probably not necessarily accurate anyway. It's more to hear the sort of journey that they see themselves being on. Yes. Especially for a lot of technical roles, it's sometimes it's hard to find people who want to be managers versus want to be individual contributors. So sure. that helps me get a sense. Do they ultimately want to be, maybe they want to run their own small design firm someday and they want to be a general manager of it. Okay. They may need some exposure to profit and loss and financial statements and may need to manage more than one or two people if they're going to have that kind of larger responsibility. So it helps me keep context. And as someone who's being asked this question, what's your advice? Like, well, how, would you, how do you answer this? Always answer honestly. This is your goal and this is your future and your focus. Especially in larger firms, Amazon many times, there are a hundred other jobs that were open at the same time. And so sometimes somebody was the right candidate interviewing for the wrong role, but fortunately the right role was open. They just didn't know about it uh, or hadn't found that yet. So would you say that you gave an example earlier about someone who might want to open up their design studio a few years down the line. If I now apply for this job and I get asked this question, considering that my goal is not necessarily aligned with the goal of the company that I'm interviewing for, should I say that? Or should I say, you know, well, perhaps in the future I'd like to lead a team or sh should I align my goal with the goal the company has at that point in time? Or should I just straightforward say, do you know what? Five years down the line, I see myself running my own design studio. Five years is a long time. That's why it's a useful question. And for most people, it is one to two job roles from today. And it also depends on, frankly, the experience and maturity of the person doing the interview. Because if they think, oh, I only want people who are going to be here five years from now, the reality is your natural churn is probably 10% anyways across the team. And so that's an unrealistic expectation. So maybe read the room. Hey, that's good advice. Read the room. Learn to read the room. Yes. And the only way you can learn to read the room is to do a lot of interviews. Let's uh, change gears a little bit and talk about the major subject that I brought you here for. And I thought I was so excited to talk to you about this, which is the relationship between design and product. And this is like opening a can of worms. There are a million questions I could ask you here. But let's start from a couple of examples, maybe one example that you've seen in your career a good example of a rela the relationship between design and product. Can you talk us through how that looks like? So going back when I was still an individual contributor, product manager. So early on at Amazon, I had a number of different roles across Amazon. And at one point, I was working on all of the feedback and reputation systems for the seller platform. So the global product of ratings for the sellers, and we needed to overhaul it because historically Amazon had copied eBay's system of feedback rating. Um, because the product ratings of five stars already existed for Amazon, fortunately, Amazon kept the star rating for rate your seller and your shopping experience with the seller and fulfillment. But the rest of it was based on eBay's system where it was a lifetime feedback rating and buyer rates seller and seller rates buyer because on eBay, you had to pay for your transaction. So there are all these quirks to it that made sense when Amazon first copied it. But five years later, after Marketplace had evolved into a very different fixed price business for Amazon, the same feedback system was still in place and it wasn't fit for purpose. So I had to redesign it and had a great designer that worked with me that I learned a lot from. But we had to think about how do we help people make better product decisions? How do we help a purchase decision? So how do we help a buyer gravitate towards sellers. At this time, it was a lot of booksellers and music and DVD, electronics. And as the price of the electronics items, we were moving into higher categories. The risk of a poor choice is higher for a shopper. So how do we help use the feedback to steer people? Because 
some of the sellers who had started five years earlier with Amazon and were still selling, some of them were fantastic, but some of them the last year or two had been horrible feedback for the purchases. So if they had a lot of negative feedback over the last year, but four years of positive feedback, they still could be a four-star seller. And so as a buyer, you had no idea this four-star seller was about to give you a really bad experience. So we had to change, how do we show recency? We also needed to eliminate the whole buyer rate seller because some sellers were badgering buyers and to give them good feedback. I'll leave negative feedback on you if you don't. The reality is the feedback on the buyer meant nothing. It changed nothing. But there was this weird threat that sellers would make the buyer. So we had to really fix the experience. And we also needed sellers to want to improve their more recent experience. And if they have defects, to fix them. So with a, a great designer working with me on this, we were able to do lots of research on buyers, research on sellers, and ultimately came up with an improved way of showing what was a seller's performance over the last 90 days, over the last 180 days, over the last year, and over lifetime. And we changed the default feedback to be your last 365 days. So that's a better representation, including a peak Christmas period, of what kind of experience someone's gonna get. And so this really helped in a long way. The other challenge we had was most feedback rating, or if you think about a five-star rating for movies, people assume there's a normal distribution and that a four-star movie is still a pretty good movie yeah. compared to a five-star movie. But on feedback at the time, it was actually a U distribution where 80% of people would leave fives and people who were unhappy, 20% would leave ones. And that's a four-star seller, which meant 20% of people were disappointed. So most people don't expect that. So they think a four-star seller or 3.8, they're great still. Actually, they aren't. And so we needed to change that a bit. And with the help of the designer, we didn't want to change the metaphor of the five stars. That had a lot of currency with people. They understood how to rate one to five, but we needed to change how they interpreted it. And so with our designer, we ended up creating the one to five stars into a four or five or a positive rating. A three is a neutral and our one or a two is a negative rating. And so then we could say, what percentage positive did the seller have? And that became one of the primary elements that our designer put on an offer listing page where you would see all of these listings, that number is more prominent. And so this allowed a lot of sellers to suddenly say, oh, I've been slacking on my performance. I better clean this up or I'm not going to get more sales. Yeah. And so it drove the right behaviors. The good design drove the right behaviors of buyers wanting to prefer to go from higher quality sellers or if there's a seller selling that product $10 cheaper and they are a three and a half star seller, but you read their feedback, late shipping, it arrived, but it was late. You might actually be okay with that. And then as a buyer, you're fully informed to say, I expect it to show up. I'm willing for it to take longer and I'll take $10 less off the price to do it. That could still be a good shopping experience because you were informed. And on a daily basis, how did design and product for this project worked you know, did you do the research together did you who, who where did the goals come from was there any negotiation there between what's possible and what's feasible or what do we do in v1 versus v2 general conversations that we have nowadays quite a lot how did that look on a daily basis on a daily basis we did the research together a very talented designer who most importantly knew how to design for testability and this is a a trait that I sometimes see lacking from some designers these days where they're given a brief and they come up with their design, one design, this is the answer. As opposed to uh, Amazon early on, designers knew that it's a hypothesis. We think we have one approach to solve this. Let's come up with two or three alternates and let's have some al alternate design views that we can look at. And in some cases, there were times we were testing the buy box, for instance. And we were testing different call to actions, different primary colors of the button, different background colors of the background where the button, because that buy box is the most high value real estate on the entire page. That is the primary call to action. Yeah. Is when it's the right product, push that button. And so those kind of tests, our designers would automatically have two or three different variables that you could uh, do a multivariate test on to come up with nine ultimate treatments that you're testing. 
I, I like that idea of coming up with more than one design in your design phase and then testing it against each other. I think that there's a tendency today to, even if you do take feedback from a lot of stakeholders, then you go and work and you, you come back with one because I guess that feels like we've solved the problem. This is the way, this is our way of solving the problem. But I do like that idea of coming up with a few alternates and then testing them against each other. And when it comes to testing, I think this is really key. It's probably very important to figure out before you test, what are you testing for? And how are you going to compare these at the end? Are they going to be compared on what participants feel about them? Is it conversion? Is it, what is it going to be? How do you come up with those goals to make sure that however you compare them, it's a fair and accurate representation of how perhaps that's going to behave in production? So some of the tests are more obvious what the goals would be. So I worked in search quite a lot. And so there you're going to have, what is the search query conversion? What's the add to basket per query? What's the units per session, revenue per session? So there's a couple of obvious goals that have very clear commercial impact on it and also customer friction goals. So for instance, in search for people who might be familiar, Sometimes you have a relevance ranking problem where the right product is returned in search results, but it's on page three, not page one. And not everyone does paginate, but those users who paginate to page three, how many people are adding the item from page three versus what's on page one? So looking at signals like that, you can test improved algorithms that may actually improve the relevance so that you will have a goal of more of the products added are found on page one versus page two or page three. So there are times where you also can test for user friction and usability. In other cases, it might not be so obvious. What is the right this definitive outcome? Like on the, the reputation one, you could choose to buy from someone with a slightly worse reputation for a cheaper price. It's not obvious to us what that behavior should be. But what we were looking at is how many people looked at a bunch of sellers and then bought from zero. So we're definitely trying to look at conversion of people getting to an offer listing page because that's the moment of truth where, you you know, if you go to back in the day when we sold lots of physical books, you're looking at a whole list of 25 people are selling Harry Potter. Did you buy from any of them? Which one did you buy from? And I always encourage designers whenever they do test different alternatives against each other to use their cross-functional partners, mostly product managers, to figure out what these metrics should be. Because as, as designers, we're not always aware of some of these metrics. We're not always in tune with the business as much as we should be. And, and I always say, just go and talk to your PM partners. They should know that's their job. Would you say that's accurate? Would you say that's the right advice? It is absolutely the product manager's job to know what outcomes are we trying to affect? Yeah. Why is this item even prioritized? It is the product manager's job since we've gone there, for designers who've not worked with PMs before, and they now enter a, perhaps a bigger company, and then suddenly they find themselves part of a squad where there's PMs and analysts and QA and whatever it may be, and they have no idea what a PM does. What does a PM do? So a product manager, so I, I should also caveat, different companies use different titles for the exact same job. Yeah. Product owner, product manager, other companies have totally different jobs with the same title. So it can be a little bit confusing at time. Uh, I'm coming from the Amazon approach and I, we implemented this at Tesco and at GFK where there is no split between product manager and product owner. It's all one job family. And the job of the product manager is to be the bridge between customer and business needs with technological possibilities and bringing those two things together. And fundamentally, the product owner or product manager's job is to deliver meaningful value for customers and for the business through the design process and the engineering process and the data science process. And how do we coordinate all of those teams to be able to work together to something that matters to the business? I always uh, d d define it as a three-legged stool, technology, product, and design. Uh, it's you can launch a product with just two of them, but it's probably not gonna be as good. If you have just design and technology, you might not always be aware of where the best opportunities are. You might not always be aware, you might not always have the pulse uh, of the customer. If it's just uh, the technology and product, then if design is not there, it might not look good. You might not implement the actual 
correct or the right or the best solution for that specific problem. So for me, the three, and I always use this word partners, technology, product, and design are partners. And you've described starting with this situation at Amazon or this project at Amazon, what a good PM and design relationship looks like. And I hope that people who are listening find themselves in one of these. But the reality is that not everyone does. And the relationship between PM and PMs and design is not always so rosy. What are some of the usual complaints or challenges that product faces when they deal with design? The difficult part of the role for both product managers and designers is that everyone else in the business thinks they can do those jobs. That's sort of a, a funny situation, but everyone thinks they could design an interface. I'll tell you exactly. Give me one second. Sorry, give me one second. Are you saying that not everyone can design something? Is that what you're saying? Well, <laughs> anyone, anyone could put pixels on a page. It might be a train wreck, right? And everyone in the business has an idea of what the product should be too. Sometimes strongly held. Right. But for the engineering or data science leg of the stool, most people in the business may at least recognize, hey, I can't write code or I can't write an algorithm. And they'll show some deference and respect yeah. for those jobs. But they'll have no problem telling the product manager or the designer exactly what they think it should look like. And that's a, a pain point in these roles. Sounds very familiar. Yeah. Yes, it probably does sound familiar. And that also gets to what I, you and I, when we were chatting before about having this podcast conversation, is what does it take for design and for product to gain more respect from the executive suite? Yeah. You know, the real challenge here is product managers, designers, and even engineers, we speak a foreign language and we forget it all the time. And we use terms that we created within our functions and we expect everyone else to understand them in the exact same way we do. We're working in an agile method. We're going to do a discovery sprint. We're going to do some contextual inquiry. Um, We're going to do some validation and we use all these terms. And sometimes the stakeholders may even nod their head if they think, okay, I understand, I think what agile means, but they don't know it the same way. And it creates these gaps between expectation and delivery, especially on time. It can also create gaps where we say, oh, we're going to be launching some new feature that will allow our clients to uh, do planning or pricing or promotions. And we think we're delivering the 0.1 version that's barely functional, but is a proof of concept. But on the stakeholder side, they think it's all singing, all dancing. Yeah. And they're surprised and shocked when they see a version 0.1 actually launch. This is a big way that designers and product managers can start building more credibility is to understand the language of their stakeholders. And most stakeholders are not talking about user friction. They're not talking about uptime of the site. They're not talking about sometimes how many sessions they have, but they are thinking in terms of active users. They are thinking in terms of revenue. They are thinking in terms of cash flow because that's what they have to talk to the board about and to the investors about. So what's fundamental to build credibility with these stakeholders is to understand and talk about how your work connects to outcomes the rest of the business cares about. And that will go a huge way to building credibility. We should spend more time here because this is super valuable. How do you then, as an individual contributor, someone who perhaps doesn't even have that much access to the senior stakeholders, you're just on the ground, boots on the ground, doing the work, whatever, building components in Figma or uh, fixing bugs, visual bugs, whatever it may be, right? It's just that, that, that work on a daily basis. How do you then take that and link it to these lofty words? What's our revenue and what's our MRR and just these things that our senior stakeholders care about? The first step is, do you know what senior stakeholders care about? Because in the all hands, they're almost certainly talking about the top objectives for the business. And you should take note of what are the most important goals that the company is tracking and how are we doing on it? With GFK, we had revenue targets, we had EBITDA cash flow targets, but for some of our key flagship products, we also had an active user base target that we wanted to grow. And we had a specific target around what percentage of active users 
we're senior decision makers. We're a business to business company. And we wanted to make sure that we also were generating value as evidenced by repeated use from more senior decision makers, a chief marketing officer, a managing director, uh, a general manager of a business unit, a vice president examples. So by tracking all these elements, it helped our design team when they were talking about product and design, what should we prioritize? Which of these goals is this going to even move or hypothesis on it? You know, you, cause you knew you had this challenge of any business to business application, the more complicated it becomes, the less likely a more senior decision maker is going to use the tool on a regular basis because it becomes harder and harder for them to dip in as a casual user and get the answers they need. The more, if it looks like a Boeing Airbus flight deck, then they're not going to try. They're not going to wade into it. They'll just delegate. Hey, tell me what that means. And so that was an important element for us to justify keeping simplicity in the design. So one of our design principles was enterprise-grade insights with consumer-grade usability. And by repeating that all the time with our commercial teams and our design teams and product and tech, it allowed them to say, we're doing this piece of work to simplify or refactor our navigation in order to make sure some of these new valuable capabilities have better discoverability for the user in the tool. It gave us the focus of why we were doing the, the bit of work because it laddered up to a goal we cared about. I think that's a great example of rehauling visually the navigation. Like I, I've worked on plenty of products where I thought this looks crap, it doesn't work, let's rehaul it, which is quite a big piece of work sometimes, not only for design, but also engineering. And unless you are able to link that to something that someone higher up cares about, it's going to be a very hard sell for you to make. So how do you push for some ideas that perhaps are going to make a difference but you don't have any evidence that they will. An example is this navigation, right? I can look at navigation. I can say, I've seen a lot of people in usability testing being confused by it. And one of our features is not being very visible because of this. And I know that if we change the navigation, we'll be able to highlight another feature much more, but I have no proof of that. How do I go about pushing for that feature or that, that redesign? So let me answer this in two ways. The first one is when you have no proof for it. And the second answer is how do you find proof for it? So it's difficult when you have no proof, but this is about also thinking of what do stakeholders care about? They understand that time is money. How much effort you go into it is a function of how confident are we that this is worthy of working on. So at GFK, we start a lot of times with paper prototypes. We're not doing high res, uh, high fidelity mock-ups of elements when we don't even know if it's a real problem customers care about. We'll do paper prototypes in the interviews. Hey, what about this? Do you think this would improve it? What if we did it this way? And then we might go, because we're a data and insights business, then we might go to a functional data prototype. And we don't have a fancy, nice mock-up of the interface. We use Google Studio. And we'll just load a data file in of real data and we'll just do a very basic outline. It looks like Excel in Google's data studio, but it allows a real user to go through a real use case with genuine data. And would this help you make an answer of what product you wanted to put on promotion and by how much to have the greatest value or creativeness on your promotion? So that's still making it pretty cheap to be wrong. That's one of my design principles is make it cheap to be wrong. And how do we make sure that we are putting our appropriate amount of resource investment into solving a problem based on how confident we are we know the answer. And over time, as you get more and more confident, then you get to let's start developing real code for this, or let's have a data scientist build a real model, or let's start building higher fidelity prototypes of what it really might look like. But it all is time is money, and you're really trying to balance those things out. Now, let me answer the second half of this. How can you get the data to help you understand if the features are being found or not? Because this is a real important problem for any B2B product, especially even consumer subscription products, where over time, more and more features are being added to the product. And you really only have a very lagged indicator of subscription renewals. How many new subscriptions come in? How many cancellations do you have? And what's the renewal rate on top of those? And there might be 20, 30, 40 features or more that are in this subscription bundle. So how do you know if your feature made a difference? This is a real problem we were trying to solve. Uh, JFK, we're using Amplitude. 
And they have a bunch of features that have made it very easy for us to track what's the awareness, what's the trial, and what's the repeat of your feature. And so for all new features rolling out that were of a major release, I'd require the product and design team to tell me, give me your estimate. What percentage of active subscribers eligible for this product or this feature, because they already have the main subscription, what percentage of, of active users will try your product in the first four weeks? And of those users, what percentage of them will repeat within four weeks after that? And if you have 30% of users try it and 2% of users repeat, we got a value problem. We've got a real issue because they're not getting enough value. And, and this is actually a super important measurement tool for the commercial teams, because before at times the commercial teams sometimes are beating the feature drum of keep going to the next feature. Our goal is not to launch features. Our goal is to launch features clients value so much they will pay for them and they will renew them. And if you've got this example where 40, 30% tried it, 2% renewed or repeated, even commercial is going to agree, oh my God, that's not generating enough value. We're not done. We need to iterate more. And it helps justify time in the sprint planning of, hey, we're not going to get to that next feature that was queued up because we still have more investment we need to make in this one to get the value out. Now, on the other side, if let's say you have 2% of active users try it, but 80% of them repeat, well, that's an easier problem to solve. That's an awareness problem. So maybe you do have a discoverability challenge in the navigation. Maybe you do have some marketing needs, or maybe you need some other way to call attention and awareness to it. In which case, back to our navigation overhaul, why are we going to refactor the navigation? We've got some high value features that are not getting enough discoverability and they're not getting repeated usage enough. And we're going to solve it this way. I really like this idea of these two targets that you were talking about. One of them shows you everything around awareness and the other one shows you anything around usefulness. Are people aware of it and are they using it often enough or, or repeatedly enough that it, it proves that it's valuable? I assume that these targets that you gave, 30%, whatever it may be, are, are hypothetical. But the question that I have is, do you set any goals or any targets for these features ahead of launching them? Or is it more of a, let's just launch it and see how it does? Uh, or do you say ahead of time, look, if this doesn't have a 50% repeat every four weeks, then it's not worth investing more money into? Or how do you deal with that part of putting metrics on, on new features or new updates? So that's, it's an important question. So we needed the estimates before it launched. And when we first started doing this, I let the product managers give me their estimates. And I didn't care if they were wildly wrong. I wanted us to start with an assumption and then let's learn and calibrate of how it played out. And over time, we would begin to see, depending on the significance of the feature, depending on how high it is in the navigation, depending on how many users it might be eligible for, you could start to see, well, I think 40 or 50% of users should try it in the first four weeks. And you need to get a repeat rate of at least 30 or 40% in order to be demonstrating value. Smaller features, I wouldn't expect the same awareness, but I would expect some repeat from that. But the second part of your question is actually really interesting here because it gets to my overall point on, are you delivering business value? And too many teams, this is not a design problem. It's really more a product management problem. Are we over-investing on the value of what feature or proposition we're trying to create here? And if you go to two extremes, let's say you've got some big subscription proposition, and you've got a small feature you want to add to it. And if that took an entire single week to do across developers, yeah, we should knock that out. If that was going to take two full years of three full squads to deliver some small feature, you'd say, okay, that's wasteful. That's not worth it. The problem is we don't have any real judgment in between. But this is what your chief financial officer cares about, your CEO. Are you spending our precious development, design, and product capacity to work on the most important things? And this is where speaking the language of your stakeholders comes a long way. If you can start to understand where's the right balance given the potential impact or hypothesis of how much value this might add. If this is a major new proposition and it's going to solve the biggest pain point for your most important customer segment, and that's going to change your ability to sell into the whole sector, then it might be worth 
six months or 12 months of, of whole squad work on. But if it's not, don't just blindly ply on another quarter and another quarter and another quarter. We need to time box. At some point, we need to say, based on how big the value is, this is going to be good enough. And I think that sometimes is a challenge I've seen in some design teams because they can be so passionate about perfect design and the perfect user experience that sometimes they lack the judgment for what is the development investment to get there. And is that really the most important thing or are we better off saying this is good enough for us as a whole squad to work on it for three weeks or four weeks and then get to the next high value item in the backlog? Yeah. There's something that I've learned is that oftentimes you can use your engineers to help push back a, a little bit because you might design this perfect feature. You might think it looks great. The experience is amazing. And then if you have an honest conversation and a good relationship to your engineers, they will have the courage to say, look, we can make it like this. If everything here is non-negotiable, fine. But we could spare, I don't know, four days of work if you just let me change this copy instead of it being automatic to something that's generic. And then you can make that trade-off of how much does it really matter that is personalized to you, that specific piece of copy versus that is something generalized. And can we make that trade-off of, do you know what, make it generalized, spare four days of work. I, I th but I think that sometimes as designers and perhaps even as product people, we don't really understand the, that trade-off before we talk to technology, before they tell us what the trade-off could be. So I, that's why I said the three-legged stool, and I find that relationship between the three parts of a product team to be very important because you can actually optimize and adjust each other's expectations using the other function skills in a way, right? Because I, as a designer, don't know how much it takes to code this necessarily. Exactly. And in fact, that exact example came up in the early days when we were building our GFK Neuron new platform. We had lots of teams running in parallel. And the challenge was some teams were designing the interface and the engagement in a way that was not consistent with other pages that a user would be traversing. And to make it worse, a lot of this is data visualizations. And early on, we, we were using high charts as one of our libraries for the visualization. And this was also a product manager's problem on my team. Product manager and the designer came up with a design that was beautiful for the exact use case they wanted, but was going to take six weeks of development time versus it would have taken a week had they had accepted the high chart default library out of the box. So it's not just save four days, it was save five weeks. Right. And they were insistent that they wanted it their way, but they also didn't have enough perspective of what are all the other pagers the same user is going to be interacting with. And this is where, this was early on for us to have some maturity around a digital design system that was more consistent in the interaction modules. I think that negotiation process comes in here as well. Again, if you have a good relationship with your cross-functional partners, because yeah, all details matter. And uh, in an ideal world, we would want the experience to be perfect. But the fact of the matter is that there's only so much we have time for. There's only so much investment in terms of engineering hours. We have this sprint or this quarter, whatever it may be. There's also space there. And I always encourage people to negotiate, say, do you know what? If you can spare four days of work doing this, just do it like this in V1. Could we then next sprint if or perhaps a couple of months from now when we've launched this feature and we see that there is some potential in it, could we then keep these other things that we haven't had time to invest in now because perhaps the certainty, the confidence for this feature wasn't there necessarily. Now that we have more confidence, can we go back to some of those details that we've left aside? And then, so it's just because you're negotiating the, for an MVP or for a version one, it doesn't mean it's out of the window and you're never going to be able to go back. It is truly just a negotiation process of, what can we do now and what can we do later when we have a bit more confidence that this feature or whatever it is makes a difference? I agree. So you said something earlier that I, I took a note here. It's certainly something that I, I think it's worth repeating and talking a little bit more about. You said, make it cheap to be wrong. I think that mentality and that approach would save so much headaches for people. Let's dive a little bit deeper into make it cheap to be wrong. What does that mean and why is that important? Oh, it, it is. Uh, so I've got on my LinkedIn profile, which I, I think we'll link to in the show notes here, I've got 10 development principles that I've come to value over the years. And they're designed to help teams make better decisions in place, not wait for some escalation. And make it cheap to be wrong is an important one. It is not fail fast. 
because we are open to failure, but we don't want to fail, especially if you're in a business to business environment. Your clients do not want you to fail, I assure you. But make it cheap to be wrong means uh, most decisions are reversible. And it's not a one-way door, it's a two-way door in a lot of these things. And how do you test things in a lightweight way? And there's a couple product development and design tools I've used over the years that help. One is working backwards. The Amazon method, writing a press release is a really cheap way to make it wrong because all you do is write a Word doc. It takes you, it's one page, take you 20 minutes to write up what's this concept, this proposition, and why is it so valuable that you're solving such an important pain point for some of your key customers. And then as you iterate on these Word docs, you get lots of internal and external feedback from these future press releases that make the idea better and stronger because people will come up with rebuttals. And so you keep a frequently asked questions list as part of this Word doc, and you just keep adding, even if you don't know the answer. Someone asked what happens, uh, some edge case, don't know, we'll figure it out. And then over time, you'll come back and you'll answer those facts and you've got a more robust concept of this is a real problem. If we solve this problem for our clients, they will love us because we are 10x better than anything else in the market. Then there's a second tool I use a lot for cheap to be wrong. How do you communicate to other stakeholders this future world you're trying to talk about? So the press release is good, it's cheap, because it is just a word doc. But sometimes you want to give people more of a feel. And so I use storyboards. So this is where I'm working with design, graphic artists, I want to tell a day in the life of my customer. And so I will have a four panel or six panel day in the life of a customer in the course of their life, some key pain they've got and how our proposition's the hero in that moment of need for them that solves all their problems in such an effortless way that they love us for it. And I've used these storyboards. It's just like a movie panel. And I've used them with Jeff Bezos to talk about Amazon mobile payments and how Amazon can help people through their daily life, use their Amazon wallet in the physical world. I've used these with boards of directors and other non-technical stakeholders because you're not getting into any of the feasibility or technical spec. It's not how we're going to solve this. It's for who and why. And that can go a long way of getting the buy-in of how you are going to take the friction out of somebody's world in such an important way that they will pay you for it. Then two other tools I'll just mention real quickly, as you're making it cheap to be wrong, you're trying to get as much validation of your riskiest hypotheses before you get to the most expensive part of building a product, which is building the full code base, the development, the deployment, all those things that are much more expensive to fix after the fact. You're trying to go through this validation cycle and that's where paper prototypes can go a long way with users trying to figure out through our interviews. Data prototypes also can be a very cheap way to be wrong because you're not writing real code. You are not building high fidelity interfaces and spending a lot of time making it glossy and pixel perfect. Instead, you're trying to figure out, has this solved a pain point? So those are a couple of different options to make it cheap to be wrong. That's awesome. Thank you. And we will definitely link to your... 10 principles, and I'm sure there are uh, many more learnings there. We're, we're nearing the end of the episode, but I, I do have a couple more questions. Uh, since you are a product executive and you have worked in a lot of companies, I'm sure you have also worked in companies where design is not a function of its own, but design is under product. And I know there are a lot of opinionated people out there who will say, no, this is a sin. It shouldn't happen. There are also a lot of people who think, no, this makes a lot of sense. I uh, would like to spend a couple of minutes talking about design reporting into product and why sometimes that's a good thing and why sometimes perhaps design should be its own division or, or its own part of the company. Uh, another very important question. And I know for tons of designers that I've known and worked with over the years, there's always this aspiration of how do I get to the executive level? And organizational design is a really, it's secret superpower to understand how to create organizations, to bring people together to allow them to accomplish important things for the business. And everyone wants a seat at the top table. But you then have to ask, how many seats are there at the top table? And at what point does there become so many seats that you've split your responsibility so far? So you could have a chief marketing officer, a chief design officer, a chief customer officer, a chief product officer, a chief product marketing officer, a chief sales officer, a chief revenue officer, a chief information officer, a chief digital officer, 
who owns what with the proposition and the customer experience? And if a big initiative fails, who's responsible for it? So at some point, there is a challenge from an organization and an executive perspective of how effective are you as a decision-making body to solve these problems for your customers and for your shareholders. Most of my career, I have managed design as part of my organization, and I love design. But in different organizations, there have been vice presidents of design, and others, they've been at a head of or director level. And an organization is an answer to a business need, just like a product is there to serve a need. Organizations are products as well. In fact, as a sidebar, most people think an organization is fixed and they just got to make the best use of they can. Instead of asking like an archeologist, what was the business question that led to this organization? And oftentimes it'll tell you some teams weren't talking. So then they made one report into the other and now all of a sudden they're all coordinated and aligned because that does go a long way to bring alignment up the executive champion path for initiatives. And product and design are super close initiatives. They're super close functions in terms of how do we bring distinct skill sets, but a similar goal to make a brilliant proposition and solve needs for users through some combination of service and interfaces and information to make a winning business. I'll stop there to see if you have other questions on that. I, th I think this is good. And I, I wanted to touch upon this because I think this conversation can oftentimes get heated. And the reason that happens is because people don't necessarily have an understanding of why organizations are the way they are sometimes. It's not a matter of design not mattering or design is not important or product is more important than design. Uh, so I, th I thought your take on this, which we've talked briefly about just before we started uh, recording, was interesting. I haven't heard that before, so I thought it was important to put it out there. Sean, let's bring this one home. I have two more questions. We ask uh, Ed or I. I only say we, but I, it's just me. <laughs> so I ask the same questions at the end of the episode each season. There are two different questions. The two for this time, and I'm going to ask one at a time, is what is one action that you think led to your success that separated you from your peers? I don't think I'm separated from my peers. I think I worked with some amazing peers, but I will say what's one action that's helped me be successful in my career. And early on at Amazon, I was fortunate that I got to work on search and search results. And because it opened my eyes to the world of A-B testing at scale, and it really helped me think about most digital problems over the last 20 years at their heart are a search and relevance problems, personalization, targeting, all these elements people are trying to do at some point is about an information retrieval, relevance ranking problem. So that mindset has helped me a lot. Uh, in fact, a funny thing, my the first A-B tests I ran for Amazon, I was running them on the book search page. And at that point, book search was 70% of Amazon's revenue, just the search results in the books category. So this is huge for the business publicly traded at that point in 1999. And I was optimizing the results of the page. The page constraint I had, everything on the page had to be 60 kilobytes or less, not megabytes, 60 kilobytes. And it was fascinating to do variations to trade off bigger books, images, smaller books. Did I want the five-star rating? If I make it a GIF, that actually is more page weight. And that means I need fewer results. Am I better off having more results for more items to be on page one or fewer results with bigger images and the rating? So fascinating problem. Very, very interesting. I, I can imagine uh, working with that constraint. Sounds like it was very fun to make these, these all these different trade-offs and figure out which one works best for the business. That's awesome. At that time, the biggest bandwidth, the biggest constraint was bandwidth to people's computers. It was dial-up. Of course. I'm, I'm dating myself there, but... Uh. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Awesome. Thank you for that, uh, that little story there. Uh, a second question is, what are we not talking about when it comes to design? I think the design industry is not talking about enough, but you heard it for probably 80% of our call today, business impact. We're not talking enough about, is the time spent matching the potential impact? and really just thinking about when is good enough on a design and move on to the next thing that has potentially more impact customers for the business. So that's probably my strongest recommendation. Understand as a designer, what does your business care about most? What do your stakeholders care about most? And then 
ask, how do I relate my work to it? And you may have to talk to your boss or you may have to talk to some of the product leads or commercial leads. But the sooner you figure out how your work links, the better decisions you're going to make and the more stakeholder buy-in you will get, which leads to you being more credible. It's a great place to end on. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. Any last words on where people can find you, where they can follow you, where they can read what you're writing, anything like that? And you can find me on LinkedIn. I post every now and then when I find time to write up something. But yeah, reach out to me there. Amazing. Sean, again, thank you very much for being part of the Design Miss Business journey. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you've listened this far, thank you. I appreciate you and I hope you've learned something that makes you just a little bit better than yesterday. You can check out the show notes on designmeetsbusiness.co. If this has taught you anything, please consider leaving a review and sharing the episode with someone else who could learn from it. And I'll catch you in the next one.